Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to CBS News Roundup ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Coming up, a push for Israel to change its tactics in Gaza. I want them to be focused on how to save civilian lives. The Supreme Court takes a case that could affect abortion access. Government control of reproduction always tortures women. In the kaleidoscope with Allison Key's segment, a seismic political shift on immigration policies by the Biden administration. This really is a global crisis that the administration is facing. I'm Allison Keyes in Washington. Friday afternoon in Israel, a new tragedy in its war with Hamas as three hostages are killed by the Israeli military in Gaza. Israelis are in shock after soldiers shot and killed three hostages in a case of mistaken identity. The incident occurred during a firefight with Hamas gunmen in Gaza City. The army said the hostages were mistaken for terrorists and described the incident as a tragedy. Robert Berger, CBS News, Jerusalem. This is National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan is in the region, meeting with both Israel and the Palestinian Authority as the U.S. urges Israel to tamp down its combat tactics. CBS is Rabian Asensio. Carrying a bloodied boy, this man yells, where is the ambulance? What stood here in Rafah were two homes, now leveled by an Israeli strike. Hamas claimed dozens of civilians were killed. America says it's against Israel targeting civilians, said the survivor, but civilians are being targeted. With deaths in Gaza now just shy of 19,000 men, women and children, according to Gaza's Hamas-run health ministry, President Biden is again pressuring Israel for more restraint, more surgical, more precise military strikes. I want them to be focused on how to save civilian lives not stop going after Hamas, but be more careful. In Israel, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan made the case. The issue here Mm -hmm. is about when the transition from a high-intensity operation to a different phase of this campaign takes place. That should happen in two to three weeks, two U.S. officials now tell CBS News, but followed by lower levels of bombing for several months. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu took to the airwaves after, saying, I told our American friends, we are more determined than ever until Hamas is eliminated. Israel's military released new footage of what it claims are terrorists killed in a major tunnel and hailed the surrender of about 70 alleged Hamas fighters, while Palestinians mourned in the West Bank town of Jenin after Israeli raids killed about a dozen people. This Israeli soldier sang into a mosque microphone a Hebrew song linked to Hanukkah in an act of religious desecration, which Israel's military condemned. 
President Biden and Secretary of State Antony Blinken met this week with several relatives of Americans still being held hostage by Hamas. CBS's Ed O'Keefe. The two-hour meeting was the president's first face-to-face encounter with families of Americans being held hostage in Gaza. We could have no better friend uh, in Washington or in the White House than President Biden himself and his administration. But little is known about the state of those still being held. Was the president able to share anything about their condition? We are going to keep the, the content of the conversation private. The White House says there are eight Americans still unaccounted for, including Americans still being held hostage. It is believed 135 total hostages of varying nationalities remain in Gaza. New signs now that the war may be moving beyond the border of Israel as European officials arrest multiple people with connections to Hamas for suspected terrorist activity. Law enforcement officials say suspects in Denmark, Germany and the Netherlands were planning to attack Jews. In Germany, authorities said at least one of the suspects was assigned by Hamas to find weapons to be used in a future terrorist attack. Three people were arrested in Berlin on suspicion of planning attacks against Jewish people or institutions. And a fourth arrest was made in the Netherlands, all four suspected of being longtime Hamas members. While in Denmark, at least six people could also be facing charges related to terrorism. The prime minister said this is as serious as it gets. So Intelligence officials in Denmark alerted the public to be aware of Jewish places of interest, saying the investigation revealed that a network of people had been preparing a terrorist attack. Zohar Palti ran counterterrorism for Israel's Mossad. In this case, we see that Hamas already is conducting terror activity globally. When you see three countries in Europe, like Denmark, like Germany, and like uh, Netherlands, this is something new, and um, I think we should be concerned about it. EU officials have recently warned Europe faces a huge risk of terror attacks. And in the U.S., FBI Chief Christopher Wray testified earlier this month that he has never seen a time where all of the threats are elevated all at the same time. Lilia Luciano, CBS News, London. Now to a holiday warning about certain batteries that can cause deadly fires. The message is clear. If lithium-ion batteries are improperly made or used, the results can be explosive. This is all evidence. Yeah, this is all evidence. You know, each one of these caused either a massive fire or death or both. Um, which is really sobering and daunting. New York City Fire Commissioner Laura Cavanaugh has been vocal about lithium-ion batteries, especially in e-bikes and e-scooters, as the number of related deaths here has skyrocketed. These will go from, you know, nothing to a sudden explosion of fire. We see first responders not able to get in. Uh, Often within minutes of the call being reported, they're arriving to a building that is fully engulfed in flames. Gabe Knight is with Consumer Reports. While the onus should absolutely be on the manufacturer and should be on the seller, um, right now it's a little bit of buyer beware. There are no mandatory federal safety standards for lithium-ion batteries, but manufacturers and sellers can comply with voluntary industry standards. Please buy from reputable companies. Make sure that you can get in touch with them if the worst-case scenario happens and these things um, do explode. Also, don't mix batteries and chargers. Don't charge batteries at extreme temperatures or for too long. Don't leave them charging unattended or near flammable items. And don't block your exit path with these devices. What do you think when you see an e-bike or e-scooter? I wouldn't want one in my home. 
I just wouldn't. I do think they can be manufactured safely eventually, but there's no guarantee of that right now. And I certainly, especially for, you know, a holiday gift or something for a child, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even want this to be a 1% chance. Uh, and right now it's far more than that. Here in the U.S., the gold standard for certification of e-bikes and e-scooters is a company called UL Solutions. It has a database on its website that you can check. Also, keep in mind, you cannot just throw lithium-ion batteries in the trash because they can catch fire. Local municipalities should have information on the best way to dispose of them. Elaine Quijano, CBS News, New York. Coming up, the nation's highest court takes up a new abortion case. Government control of reproduction always tortures women, and we can't have it. And later in the show, a whopping deal for a baseball superstar. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. The U.S. Supreme Court said this week it will take up an abortion case that could restrict access to a widely used drug and another case that could end up affecting former President Trump. CBS's Jan Crawford joins us to explain. Well, this is the first case that the Supreme Court will take uh, after it ruled that Roe versus Wade uh, was, uh, you know, out the door. And so this case does not really look at the underlying right to an abortion, but whether or not the FDA followed the right approval process uh, when it said that women uh, could have access to the abortion pill up to 10 weeks of their pregnancy, and then they didn't need to see a doctor in person to get it. A federal appeals court said the FDA had not gone through the right approval process. Uh, and this is what now the Supreme Court is going to review. Now, of course, uh, the courts, those lower court decisions blocking the drug are on hold. So the pill will remain available uh, while this case plays out. So what are the main arguments for this? I know uh, people who favor abortion rights are concerned that this will really restrict access to this drug for women across the nation. This is a really complicated case about, you know, the power of federal agencies um, and administrative review. But, you know, at its heart, it, it is really about whether or not or how easy it is going to be for women to have access to what is the most common method of abortion in this country, the abortion pill. The FDA kind of loosened the restrictions around that pill uh, several years ago. And um, that this is what now the court is reviewing, whether or not that process that the FDA went through uh, was the right way to do it. And so if the court finds uh, that the FDA didn't go through the right hoops, then that will restrict this pill. It's going to make it harder for women to get uh, after seven weeks and certainly uh, requiring them to get it in person at a doctor's office now where you can get it through telehealth, uh, in some cases by mail, uh, will have a big impact on access to abortion, even in states where abortion is legal. And that's going to happen right before the election. Any any thoughts, Jan, what you've heard from your sources, what, what people think this is going to mean? I think this is a case that the Supreme Court will never decide. This case has serious issues of what's called standing and whether or not it's even before the Supreme Court or the courts in general in the first place, uh, whether or not the parties to this case are the proper parties to be challenging the FDA's approval process for this abortion pill drug. 
So to, when you look at some of the issues in this case and what the justices have been very concerned about in other cases in the past, uh, they're concerned about opening the courthouse doors uh, to people who really shouldn't be there challenging laws in the first place if they don't affect them directly. To me, this is a case that presents that issue pretty clearly, and I'd be very surprised if the Supreme Court reaches the merits. My gut right now, and of course, this is before briefing and argument, is this is the case the Supreme Court is going to say, uh, you guys didn't have a right to challenge this case in the first place. Uh, we're going to just dump this case right now, and the abortion pill will remain legal okay. and freely, freely available. So I'm just going to ask you really briefly about this other fight that the Supreme Court is weighing into that could affect former President Trump and hundreds of people that are already you know, convicted for their actions during the January 6th assault on the Capitol. Well, Donald Trump has gone to the Supreme Court. Uh, there are two different cases uh, that 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 really could have a huge impact on his prosecution. The first case he's not involved in, but other January defendants are. That case that the Supreme Court granted uh, is whether or not hundreds of January 6th defendants, including former President Donald Trump, were properly charged under a federal law that prohibits obstruction of official proceeding. Uh, now, it sounds pretty clear on its face, right? It was January 6th, congressional, uh, you know, uh, uh, certification of the election. Uh, that's an official proceeding. But the defendants in this case say, no, that case is about corporate crime. It's concerned with documents and records. It was passed during the wake of the Enron accounting scandal. And some lower court judges have agreed with that. CBS is Jan Crawford. On Capitol Hill this week, disturbing testimony from four women at a Senate hearing into sexual assault and harassment at the U.S. Coast Guard Academy. CBS's Scott McFarland reports they say a culture of abuse there has been covered up. The U.S. Coast Guard, charged with protecting America's waterways, has failed to protect its own women, according to Caitlin Morrow, who says she was sexually harassed and assaulted repeatedly, including by a classmate, at the Coast Guard Academy in New London, Connecticut, in 2004. He would assault me during swim class. He would swim up underwater, grab any body, part of my body that, that he pleased. A series of former Coast Guard service women. The abuse becomes so unrelenting, so omnipresent, and so insufferable, we seek relief in suicide. I survived my attempt. And a current cadet. We are always told that you just have to say no. But no to him was an invitation to try again. Told a Senate committee it happened to them, too. We were paralyzed with fear. In an internal Coast Guard survey last year, more than half of women reported suffering sexual harassment, and nearly one in seven reported unwanted sexual conduct. It is a culture of cover-up that the Coast Guard has spawned and sustained for decades. Coast Guard Admiral Linda Fagan, who took over last year, recently told Congress progress is being made. But in a new report on sex misconduct, the Coast Guard acknowledges a history of a lack of transparency, broken trust, and reports of retaliation against victims. Marrow left the academy after just half a year, saying she was ostracized. Yeah, the bullying and the retaliation um, is... It's, it's crushing. My main perpetrator is currently a lieutenant commander in the Coast Guard. He is thriving in a career that I had hoped for. In a statement to CBS News, the Coast Guard says it's encouraging members past and present to report any sexual misconduct they experienced. The scrutiny is going to grow. The Senate is talking about subpoenas of agency records and emails to get a sense of the scope and size of any alleged cover-up. Scott McFarland.
CBS News, the Capitol. President Biden is calling a vote in the Republican-led U.S. House to begin formally investigating him for impeachment, a baseless stunt. But CBS's Nicole Killian tells us the GOP members say they are pursuing the truth amid stonewalling by the White House. The resolution is adopted. Hours before the House formally voted along party lines to approve an impeachment inquiry against President Joe Biden, his son Hunter delivered a surprise statement on Capitol Hill. And in the depths of my addiction, I was extremely irresponsible with my finances. But to suggest that is grounds for an impeachment inquiry is beyond the absurd. Hunter Biden, who was indicted last week on federal tax fraud charges, defied a Republican subpoena Wednesday to testify behind closed doors about his business dealings overseas, now at the center of the impeachment investigation. There is no evidence to support the allegations that my father was financially involved in my business because it did not happen. He said my father was not financially involved in the business. That is a huge change. The committee chairs overseeing the probe rejected Hunter's offer to appear for a public hearing and plan to hold him in contempt of Congress. There is no evidence that President Biden has engaged in an impeachable offense. Coming up, the state of the wind energy business. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. Delegates at the World Climate Summit this week agreed on a long-term goal to give up fossil fuels that cause climate change. It's the first time they have been mentioned in an international climate agreement. CBS's Tina Krause. It is so decided. Nearly 200 nations have approved a first-ever call for the world to transition away from planet-warming fossil fuels. This is the fastest, simplest, easiest, quickest, cheapest way to be able to make the gains we need to make to reduce the threat to the planet. Climate negotiators struck the deal in Dubai after 13 days of hard-fought talks in a country built on oil wealth. Scientists say emissions from oil, gas and coal are the main driver of climate change. The U.S. is the second largest emitter after China. This has the potential to be the beginning of a new era, the post-fossil era. The agreement aims to triple the amount of renewable energy sources by 2030 while relying less on fossil fuels, substantially reduce methane emissions, another potent greenhouse gas this decade, and achieve net zero carbon emissions globally by mid-century. This text is not enough. Climate activists, along with many countries, including the U.S., argued for tougher language to completely phase out fossil fuels. But we know this was a compromise between many parties. Scientists say breaking away from fossil fuels is the last best hope to stave off a climate catastrophe. Tina Krause, CBS News, London. A big step forward for the U.S. offshore wind industry, which is now sending power to American cities. CBS has been Tracy. When you see this thing spinning here, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, this is the future. It's also historic. This 800-foot-tall wind turbine is part of the first large-scale offshore wind farm to ever deliver power in the U.S. This is actually generating power for New York right now. 
Yes, it is. Power from the first turbine is, has come to the grid. Jennifer Garvey works for Orsted, the Danish wind power giant that is building this installation 35 miles off the coast of Long Island. Once complete, it will have 12 turbines, each two and a half times taller than the Statue of Liberty. You've got some of the best winds in, in the world here. Orsted America's CEO David Hardy showed us this beach where power from those turbines comes ashore near the Tony village of East Hampton. Earlier this year, the company threaded an undersea cable deep below the sand and down this road to connect to the grid. So this is basically a massive extension cord. Yeah, you could call it that, a 78-mile extension cord. And this town, with an obvious affinity for windmills, is now partially powered by 132 megawatts of the real deal. For those that don't speak energy, that's uh, 70,000 homes. This is a first. This is a milestone. It was supposed to be the first of about two dozen offshore wind farms built by developers along the East Coast, a key part of the transition away from fossil fuels and their planet warming pollution. But the offshore wind industry is now being battered by a combination of inflation, rising interest rates, and supply chain issues that have made many projects too expensive to build. That could also drive up the price of wind power from those that do start spinning. It is cool to see it up close. When we first talked to Hardy at a pilot project back in 2021, he felt the wind was at his company's back. Are you optimistic about the future of this? Yeah, very optimistic. A lot has changed. Orsted recently canceled two giant wind farms off New Jersey and is reconsidering two others. Do you think in some ways it was overly optimistic? Probably in some ways we, we, we were too optimistic on, on some things, but we didn't expect the big macroeconomic conditions to kind of drag, drag these projects down. All of these projects were critical to President Biden's goal of 30 gigawatts of offshore wind power by 2030, enough to power more than 10 million homes. Analysts predict the industry will actually install about half that capacity. We don't believe the Biden administration is going to reach their target, but that's not to say they're going to reach it ever. It's just not they're going to reach it by the 2030 deadline they originally set. Analyst Timothy Fox is optimistic about the long-term future of offshore wind as the industry constructs its supply chain, including massive ships like this one being built in Louisiana that will service wind turbines. Another huge wind farm off Martha's Vineyard is expected to start delivering power early next year. Back at Orsted, David Hardy believes offshore wind is still the best source of renewable energy for crowded East Coast cities, where it's hard to build wind and solar farms on land. It's been a bumpy couple of years, but you still have a lot of people who, who believe in this industry and, and know that it needs to happen. Now to our series, The COVID Generation and How Students Turn to Social Media, which has hurt their mental health. At Newburgh Free Academy in New York, cell phones are locked away for the entire school day, including lunch. <laughs> Students like Tyson Hill and Monique May say it's a relief after constantly being on their phones during the COVID lockdown, when screen time among adolescents more than doubled. How much do you blame the phones and social media for taking a toll on your mental health? All of it. All of it. <laughs> for me personally, yeah. I blame my darkest moments because of my phone. Have you ever been bullied online or felt left out after looking at social media? Of course. Throughout my middle school experience, like there was a lot of 
people talking about you, whether it be on Snapchat, posting a story that made fun of the way you looked. And it made me feel depressed. The youth mental health crisis is the defining public health issue of our time. If we do not address it with urgency, then I worry we will lose an entire generation of children to depression, anxiety, and suicide. This year, U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy issued an advisory on the effects of social media on youth mental health. Would you consider advising the country to ban smartphones during school hours? Well, I do think that we should have restrictions on phones in the school setting. We fundamentally have to understand that these devices, and in particular social media, is behaving largely as an addictive element. Newburgh Free Academy Assistant Principal Ebony Clark says banning phones has helped cut down online bullying. All I'm doing is giving them the opportunity to engage in school and leave the drama outside these doors. Now that you don't have that distraction during the school day, how much has it helped you as a person? I'm more confident in who I am, and I think that just comes from not being able to worry about what other people are saying about me, just being me. Meg Oliver, <laughs> CBS News, Newburgh, New York. A new spike in illness among kids, reporter Jennifer Perry. It's not just COVID or the flu. We've actually seen an increase in gastrointestinal or GI viruses, specifically viruses that are causing fever, vomiting, and diarrhea. Dr. Twee Bui, medical director at Children's Scottish Rite ER, says hospitalizations are up, but a trip to the emergency room may not be necessary if your kids can keep down fluids. She says kids can typically go back to class or holiday events if they're symptom-free for 24 to 48 hours. Coming up in the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keyes segment, the situation at the nation's border. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Welcome to the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keyes segment, where every week we discuss issues including income inequality. This time we're talking immigration and the nation's borders amid record levels of migrant apprehensions along the southern border and a pitch political battle tying the Biden administration's policies with aid for Ukraine and Israel. CBS News immigration reporter Camila Montoya Galvez joins us to explain the dramatic shift being considered by President Biden. By any measure, Allison, this is a big political shift by President Biden on this issue of immigration. The White House, we are told, is now offering Republican lawmakers in Congress, Allison, tougher immigration policies to get their support for military aid to Ukraine, but also more money for border enforcement and management. And obviously, as you know, Republicans have been insisting that they will not support any additional aid to Ukraine unless the administration agrees to some sweeping restrictions on asylum and other immigration programs. And so the administration, from what we're told, is considering, for example, supporting a new authority that would allow border agents to just return people back to Mexico or to their home countries without processing their asylum claims if there's a spike in illegal crossings. And that would essentially allow the government, Allison, to suspend immigration law and asylum law, which right now requires the government to screen people who say they're fearing for their lives. 
The other change that we are told the White House is considering, Allison, is a dramatic increase in immigration detention and also deportations to expand what are known as expedited removal deportations across the country. So as you rightly noticed, this is a significant shift by a president who came into office denouncing what he called cruel and draconian Trump-era immigration policies. And some of these changes that the White House is now open to are very much similar to those policies that the president criticized just three years ago. I was about to ask, some of this sounds pretty similar to what former President Trump was doing at the border. How are, well, how are Republicans and Democrats reacting to these discussions? Well, Allison, progressive and Latino lawmakers in particular in Congress have become really angry at the way that these negotiations have proceeded. They have felt that the White House has excluded them from the conversations, and they are very worried that the White House will give Republicans these very significant concessions on asylum and not get really anything that has been long prioritized by Democrats on immigration, like, for example, legalizing the Dreamers, Allison, those immigrants who came to the U.S. as children or the farm workers, right? These are longstanding Democratic priorities on this issue, Allison, that are not on the table right now. Everything right now is focused on restricting asylum and increasing deportations to deal with the situation at the U.S.-Mexico border where migrant apprehensions have reached record levels. And so there has been a lot of frustration among progressives. And then on the other side of the equation, you have this wild card because it's unclear that even if Senate negotiators are able to reach a deal, Allison, that House Republicans who are much more conservative on this issue will agree to support it. So this is still a a very fluid situation, Allison, but the fact that the White House is considering these very sweeping hardline policies really tells you a lot about the political moment we are in on this issue. You were just saying that there has been a surge of migrants crossing the border, both at Mexico and there's been a surge in Arizona as well, right? What's what's the situation at the border right now? Oh, Allison, I just came back from the Arizona border. I was there last week in a remote section of the border known as the Tucson sector near Lukeville, Arizona. It's a small desert town in the middle of a national monument, the Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument, and it really has become one of the latest epicenters of this migration crisis. I saw hundreds and hundreds of migrants from across Africa, Asia, and Latin America waiting in the outdoors, braving the elements, because Border Patrol just did not have the resources, Allison, and the manpower to process them in a timely manner. Many of them had to relieve themselves near the cacti in that outdoor area. And there were even Mexican families across the border wall, Allison, selling them food and coffee because they were waiting there so long. And so that I think just illustrated the humanitarian crisis along the border where agents again are overwhelmed by the number of people. And they're also seeing migrants from across the globe. I I mentioned Africa, I met migrants from uh, Guinea, uh, Mauritania, Morocco, Burkina Faso, Senegal, and I also met migrants from Asia, uh, migrants from Senegal, um, Nepal, uh, from India. And so this really is a global crisis that the administration is facing, Allison. 
And I wonder how much the situation in Democratic-led cities like New York and Chicago is pushing this, right, where residents are protesting more places being opened for migrants to stay. And in Chicago in particular, the black community has been really annoyed that migrants are getting help that black people feel that they have not been getting. Oh, Allison, that is such a critical question. The political calculus on this issue has definitely changed because of the situation in these cities, the ones that you mentioned, New York, Chicago, and others that are really struggling to house migrants. In New York, you have Mayor Eric Adams constantly asking for more federal support and arguing that the federal government is not doing enough. In Chicago, you mentioned the local authorities have also experienced difficulties housing tens of thousands of migrants, many of them from Venezuela, who lack the family ties and who don't have friends or family here to take them in and so have to rely on city services. And so that, I think, has changed the political dynamic tremendously because before, Allison, it was mainly Republicans criticizing the administration on this issue. But now you have leading Democrats in cities like New York, Chicago, Denver, in Illinois and New York, the governors there, all criticizing the administration and saying that they have to do something along the border to reduce the number of people coming in and then obviously consequently coming to their cities. Let me ask you one more quick question. I did see within the last week or so, suddenly the government is prohibited from separating migrant children from their families as they had been doing. What happened with that? Yeah, so this is a landmark court settlement, Allison, that was reached by the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, and the Biden administration. The ACLU was the organization that sued the Trump administration over this infamous family separation policy along the border. The Biden administration has agreed to a settlement, Allison, that will prohibit the government for the next eight years from separating migrant children from their parents for the purposes of prosecuting the adults, the parents, for entering the country illegally. So right now, border agents are prohibited under that settlement and will be prohibited from that action for the uh, next eight years. And that obviously could hinder uh, an effort by a potential second Trump administration from reviving this policy. So this is something that obviously advocates have been pushing for quite some time. That's CBS News immigration reporter Camilo Montoya Galvez. Coming up, a very lucky baby in Tennessee. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. Superstar Shohei Otani's got a whopping $700 million 10-year deal. With his 100-mile-per-hour fastball. Got a hundred. And Titanic home runs. An absolute rocket. Shohei Otani has reinvigorated baseball and rewritten the history books. His new contract with the Los Angeles Dodgers will pay him $700 million dollars much of which is deferred. Even so, it's by far the most valuable contract in baseball history, rivaled only by the most expensive soccer and boxing deals. If you're wondering if he's worth it, the two-way phenom's talent is best compared to someone who last played nearly a century ago. You may have heard of him. up there waiting, there's the pitch, and he smacks it out in the right field. Sam Blum, an Angels beat reporter with The Athletic, says Otani's international appeal makes him 
a marketing magnet. Otani is not like a Major League Baseball player in a lot of ways. He's like his own conglomerate. He's like his own company. But the wear and tear from both pitching and hitting has taken a toll. This past season, he underwent elbow ligament surgery for the second time, meaning he won't pitch in 2024. I mean, the Dodgers are going to have to be very careful about how often he's used, because if they're not, you might see him become more injury prone. Otani, who has yet to appear in baseball's postseason, now moves to a perennial playoff contender. And that's welcome news for the MLB. Last World Series ratings were the worst on record and featured few marquee names. There is a real value to the league in having him you know, play in the playoffs, be a part of a, a super team, be a part of a team that could put on an on national television every week, twice a week, three times a week. I mean, really, and I'm, I'm certain we'll see that. Adam Yamaguchi, CBS News. But be patient if you want a jersey. Right center field. Shohei Otani's Dodger tops are selling faster than Messi's or Ronaldo's. An employee tells the L.A. Times the stadium gift shop's been hopping after it received its first batch of number 17s. And some people are buying more than one at a time, even with a price tag of 238 bucks. They come in large, extra large, and 2XL. The limited players' jerseys aren't available yet, and another shipment's not expected before Christmas. Deborah Rodriguez, CBS News. Friday marks the final night of Hanukkah, the Jewish celebration of the miracle of light that kept shining through the darkest of times. Some Jews are recalling their survival of the Holocaust. CBS Evening News anchor Nora O'Donnell spoke with twins Stephen and Marion Hess, who were sent to a concentration camp when they were only six. The Hess family, like millions of Jews, was taken from their home by the Nazis. The Holocaust seems like ancient history. So we have to find a way for it not to be that, for that to be a lasting lesson. Sent by train in 1944 to Bergen-Belsen, a concentration camp where more than 50,000 died, including Anne Frank. Marion and Stephen credit their parents for keeping them together. They never, ever gave up. And uh, they were just determined to keep us alive. The food in Bergen-Belsen was called rabies, turnips, uh, calories, about 600 calories to keep you alive. Their father was assigned to heavy labor. Eight decades later, they still remember their mother's sacrifice. She realized that my father needed a lot more nourishment than she did. And even though we were all starving, she gave half of her portions to my father. So still gets to me. Gets uh, to me. Yeah, uh, to keep him going. Where do you think that will to survive came from, that determination? They had a, a real sense of inner courage and strength. Stephen and Marion, now 85 years old, hope their story can be a lesson of remembrance. What has it been like? For you since October 7th. It's something that makes you watch television morning, noon, and night. There's got to be a better way. But it can't always be kind of a scorecard of how many get murdered and how many get displaced. I hope that something will happen where when these conflicts happen that there's a real kind of effort to have a long-term solution, you know, where both sides feel like they have a chance for a future. The Hesses found their future here in the U.S., arriving by boat in 1947. What do you remember about that? Do you remember <laughs> your parents? A lot. <laughs> a lot, a lot. Our parents got us up early to, 
to pass the Statue of Liberty. In later life, it became a very precious memory. But whenever I see the Statue of Liberty, it rings bells because that was the symbol of our freedom and the ability of, for us to have a new life. Nora O'Donnell, CBS News. Another miracle overseas where a lost boy has been found. Six years ago, 11-year-old Alex Batty went missing, presumed abducted by his mother and grandfather who'd taken him on holiday in Spain. Yesterday, a teenager answering to that name was discovered in southern France, apparently having run away from the alternative community his mother had joined. He's being watched by social services until he can be returned to his grandmother and legal guardian in the UK. Vicki Barker, CBS News, London. Finally, a different kind of miracle for a couple in Clarksville, Tennessee, after their four-month-old was swept up into a tree by a tornado and survived. WTVF-TV's Alexandra Cohen. Mangled mobile homes, splintered wood, and debris everywhere. The Holt Park mobile home community has been decimated by a tornado. I ran to the back bedroom, jumped on top of Princeton. By the time I jumped on Princeton, the walls collapsed. And then that's when the siren went off. Sydney Moore says she held on to her one-year-old Princeton and her boyfriend tried to get to their four-month-old son, Lord. He went to try to grab Lord out the bassinet and the roof had already came off and the bassinet was the first thing to go up. But Lord stayed in the bassinet, like in the air. Like he's seen him still in the bassinet in the air. Although they did two twirls, he said, and then they got thrown. When it passed, she tells me, the first thing she screamed was, where's my baby? You can see this is where her pack and play is wrapped around a tree. Thank God he wasn't in it. Cindy says it was the scariest moments of her life. He finally found Lord. He was placed in a tree, like I swear to God. Like, he looked like he was placed in a tree with a gash on the side of his face right here. It was a deep, deep gash but they glued it shut. They had to hike a mile to get out and Lord was rushed to the hospital with a concussion and a big cut on his ear. Lord, he was crying and I heard him crying and he kept like falling asleep, waking up, falling asleep, waking up. Her boyfriend broke his collarbone. They're all banged up, but lucky to be alive. By the grace of God, I swear to, I swear like they survived. Lord's bassinet is crumpled by their home a somber reminder of what this family went through. That's it for the Weekend Roundup. Thanks for listening. We want to get your feedback. Send us your thoughts and story ideas to Weekend Roundup at cbsnews.com. As always, you can find the program online on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Sarah Fishman is a technical supervisor, and Alan Peng provides production assistance. Tara Lipinski is the executive producer. Have a great week. I'm Allison Keyes, CBS News. If you like CBS News Roundup, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert, and I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert, and I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. So what do people get when they listen to The Late Show Pod Show? Let's, let's sell this thing. The extended moments, for sure, because we run out of time for broadcast, but we have plenty of time on the podcast. It's kind of like being a live audience member of the show because you get things that no one else hears. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts.
Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.